It's a totally false accusation. I have absolutely no idea who she is. I, there's some picture where we're shaking hands. It looks like at some kind of event. I have my coat on. I have my wife standing next to me. And I didn't know her husband, but he was a newscaster. But I have no idea who she is. None whatsoever. The president of the United States was accused of sexual assault again. Trump is really repeating his 2016 strategy. This is the way that the Donald Trump has, has spoken, has talked about women, the things that he, he admitted uh, that he believes how to treat women. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. My guest today is E. Jean Carroll. E. Jean is a longtime journalist who started writing for Esquire in 1980 and went on to prominence at Rolling Stone, New York, Glamour, Playboy, and Outside Magazine. For ages, she was a columnist at Elle, known for both profound incisiveness and extreme generosity. She's the author of several books, including a biography of Hunter S. Thompson, and most recently, What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. The book is out next week from St. Martin's. E. Jean Carroll was also raped by Donald Trump. I'm saying that as her friend, and it's my word. She says that Trump forced his penis into her body, and I couldn't doubt her if I tried. I believe her every bit as much as you'd believe a friend who said they just bought a sandwich or gotten stuck in the rain or seen the Avengers. She's describing what she saw and experienced. So let's just say it again. E. Jean Carroll was raped by Donald Trump. E. Jean has given a detailed chronicle of her physical fight with Trump, whom she escaped, as well as her assault on TV and in her book, an excerpt of which is the cover story for New York Magazine right now. Her story has been fact-checked and corroborated. It's always been consistent. Better yet, it was denied flatly by Trump, who, according to the Washington Post, lies 12 times a day. So on that day, that lie, that denial was one of the 12. Today, we're going to approach E. Jean's experience with Trump and other violent and abusive men in her life in a new way. For one, Dahlia Lithwick, the legal analyst and host of Slate's Amicus podcast, is in the studio with me. Dahlia is also a fan of E. Jean and remembers the heyday of a certain breezy way of thinking about casual and even non-consensual sex. Dahlia also writes regularly about gender, sex, reproduction, and the law, and has spoken out about her own Me Too experience with Alex Kaczynski, the disgraced former judge on the Ninth Circuit. The conversation today is not about Trump whom we all believed when he said he assaults women and thinks it's his prerogative. It's about the remarkable journalist E. Jean Carroll and everything she has to teach about encounters with assailants and rapists like Trump, about coming forward, staying happy, the camaraderie she enjoys with other women, and how she's such a damn stylish writer. Joining me on the line is E. Jean Carroll, the author of What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. And joining me in the studio is the great Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome, guys. Virginia! I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. It has been so satisfying to see that the world gets to see you as your admirers have seen you for so long, as someone who is always true to herself. I know you're the one that usually gives the praise, but you may need to take some praise right now because I am just interested in reviewing how you became the writer you are. I just, oh. as a stylist, there's no one oh. like you. I swear I could take see three words and identify your work. Wow. And I don't know that listeners 
know your career as well as fangirls like me do. So maybe you can start us in Indiana and say, how the hell did you get to write for Esquire in its heyday and go from there to right. SNL, Playboy, Rolling Stone, L, you know, columns in women's magazines that last two days and yours lasted decades? I'll tell you, Virginia, it's I started filling the U.S. mails full of proposals and submissions, poems, plays, article ideas. I started at 12, and I did not receive my first acceptance until I was 37. So, I mean, in three decades, I, I would send out to every magazine I could get the address. My first one, when I was 12, I sent to the um, Sears and Roebuck catalog. I just, I just, I just love to write. I love to, you know, I wanted to see my uh, name in print. My family uh, had subscribed to every magazine. Uh, We were a magazine family. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just the most glamorous thing because I remember my father one time got a letter printed in Time magazine. Oof. Oh, we were so excited. <laughs> it was, I think the local paper came and wrote about it. It was a big deal. So I never forgot that. I never forgot the excitement and glory. Uh, Chekhov writes about this in a short story uh, about a, uh, a young man, uh, about a boy appearing in a newspaper account because he's a witness uh, to a fistfight. And it made uh, his whole, yeah, very exciting. Even that appearing as a witness, just being part of the public record. Right. Which, yes. you know, if, if you're from Indiana, you know, my mother had this same set of fantasies, the sort of Sylvia Plath thing that you'd get published uh, in Mademoiselle. Yes. She had it in Appalachia. I had it in New Hampshire. And you had it in Indiana that, you know, it's really <laughs> feels terrifying to a young person, young woman, that you're just going to get written out of the story. You're never going to, yeah. you know, and you get right with all that Tenacity got right to the sort of epicenter of things. But how did you develop your style? That's what I wonder. I think I came out of the womb with it. Yes? <laughs> yeah, I think I came out of the because I'm a, an eccentric personality. Mm-hmm. And so I just needed to get that onto paper. And I, to tell you, I honed it. I honed it. Did you have people you admired the way, the way Dolly and I admired you? Oh, yeah. Joan Didion. Yes. Tom Wolfe. Yep. Hunter Thompson, Jane Austen, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great stylist. Yes. And I would copy their style. I would copy it. I would steal, you know. Nobody was buying my stuff anyway, you know. So <laughs> I can see some of the Tom Wolf, the italics. Like, that makes sense. Right? That really kind of, like, bruising, take-no-prisoners, eccentric, emotional style that is pretty astounding. And to have— but, Wait, Virginia, where did you get your style? Oh, God. Well, I, no, I seriously, actually, where I, did you get your style? I would say I got some of it from Helen Gurley Brown. Were you influenced ah. at all by Cosmopolitan? <laughs> I just loved that. And you bring that forth, especially in your stories about the 90s, including the story about Donald Trump, this kind of larky, breezy, bubbly, like, I'm just up for anything right. and I'll go anywhere. Right. And that's in the language, too. And you're so curious about where you are. Very I curious. feel like the description of Bergdorf's and the clothes oh, haven't yeah. gotten enough attention in your account of Donald Trump's assault of you. That, you know, that's where you're all eyes and ears, you know, in that scene. Yes, I love Bergdorf's. It, it's <laughs> like, isn't it the poshest, the poshest place on earth and so cozy and they take care of your every whim and I can't afford anything, <laughs> but I don't care. And it's so 
so wonderful. And to think that I would run into, you know, uh, the real estate tycoon there. It was all just so delicious. Yeah. I was carried away. I just thought it was, uh, I thought I couldn't think of anything funnier or more delightful. This is Dahlia. Can yes. I ask, I'm so curious, Virginia and I were talking before about how how much of your humor and your this sort of breeziness, this sort of like, I'm an alien and I've been beamed onto this <laughs> strange <laughs> land of men and how much that influenced. I, I, I was thinking, you know, I've covered the Supreme Court for 20 years and there's so much of that in my writing, this sort of. I don't know what's going on, but I'll tell yeah, you what I, I see. And I wonder if some of the blowback, I don't even like the word blowback, Eugene, but some of the reaction to your piece was like, her tone is really weird. Why is she so happy? And you address that in the piece itself. You address it in the book. But I sort of wonder, what did that humor, that use of sort of levity and joy, what did that by you in your early years as a journalist? Is it that men like that or that women like that? Or it was a way to sort of deflect from how scared mm. you were? What, how are you using humor? Well, I think uh, humor and tragedy are married. They've got a marriage, you know, man and wife, uh, comedy and tragedy. Mm -hmm. And life goes back and forth on that seesaw. And I quickly learned as a l small girl growing up that if I cried about something, it made me hurt more. It gave me uh, more sorrow. And I learned that if I started smiling and laughing about it, I would move on very quickly and I would forget about it. Mm -hmm. If I laughed, I forgot. If I cried, I felt horrible. I felt worse than when the thing happened. Mm -hmm. And you do that like five or six times in, when you're very young. You realize what works. And also, it's just I happen to be lucky. I happen to be born with that temperament. My brothers and sisters all have the same temperament. You know, the other name for that kind of um, stoicism and pluck is is repression. <laughs> and, you know, it's if you came from a red state, you came from the country like you did. Right. We t like I at least tended to see the people around me as repressed. But I think that when you get to New York, you start to see your childhood or your background as repressed, right. and now you're not going to be repressed. You sort of bounce the opposite direction. You're going to say yes to everything. You're going to do this kind of weird set piece with lingerie. Right. With Donald Trump, of all people, no one I went to high school with ever gets right. lucky enough to find themselves exactly. in this situation. But I was never, I hate to tell you, Virginia, I was never repressed. I am not a <laughs> repressed person. Not, not, not repressed. But, I remember everything. I just don't think about it. I see. I'm not repressed. But you don't, I mean, was there, you know, maybe I don't even, it's not even worth asking because you are allowed to say how this experience made you feel and right. there's no right way to, you know, right. witness sexual assault. I guess what I'd rather then talk to you about is being a witness because in your work, you're such a good observer. You're such a good observer of of other people. I don't think people fully understand that the book is just filled with these, just every paragraph, every sentence has some crazy detail that kind of comes from nowhere. And that of all the Me Too stories, and certainly of all Trump's accusers, most people are not gifted with that level of kind of cognitive sharpness that you have. And so you were Thank able you. to be a real eyewitness, not a victim, right. but an eyewitness. Oh, that's good. I like that. I hadn't thought of that. Yes, it was a witness. Yes, a witness. And you witnessed sexual assault, or you witnessed a penis go partly into a vagina. Yes. I was there when it happened. <laughs> I was absolutely there. 
and I was aware of it. And um, it, to me, it was a battle. It was a fight. And I'm a little astounded that people um, are discussing my use of the word. Uh, I would think that every woman mm-hmm. can choose her own expression mm-hmm. to match her what happened to her. Mm-hmm. So one of the great happenings around this is I never said it. I don't use that word. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be pictured as a woman who's thrown on the ground and has her bodice ripped and some man has his way with her mm-hmm. and she's left like a piece of rag on the side of the road, mm-hmm. raped, you know, secondhand goods, uh, you know, no, no longer of use to anybody, cast her aside. I like to see myself as, you know, went to battle had a fight, fought, got out. That's, you know, that's it. The other word is just too weighted. Yep. And just so heavy, so caring, you know, what, 50,000 years of history. Isn't this part of that thing we were talking about at the very beginning, which is like, this is your story and you are not an object. You're not a victim. You are not the yeah. subject. You you have I was really stunned by the the version in the cut. You don't name him. He, he's named in the in the headline and in the photos, but you're not yeah. going to give this over to him. And that's an amazing, no. powerful action you took. You centered you in this story. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dahlia. This is not his. This mm-hmm. is not his. This is mine. Yep. This is mine. And this is for every woman in the country who is rising up. This is not him. Not. It's 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 us. It's all of us together. And uh, uh, to feel the buoyant, surging, irrepressible rise when I walk around New York, New York City is just an amazing experience. Just amazing. This is not his story, even though he thought this book was about him. Apparently, <laughs> it's it, it has you know it, it is not about him. It's about us. When you talk about the sisterhood, Lisa Burnbeck and um, Carol Martin, your friends, in whom you confided at the time, are now using their names and spoke to the New York Times recently, and they... They communicate almost as much the same kind of secondary witness that, you know, corroborating your story, as they say in court, um, but also that sense of solidarity with you. Yes. And to get Virginia to get them to come forward took five days. They did not. They're private. They did not want to come forward. They only did it at the very end because they thought it would help me. And they always said, Eugene, whatever you want, we'll do it. It was a struggle for them. And why do you think that is? Because this is, um, you know, we do have a notorious pussy grabber in the White House. And I'm sure Lisa and Carol, who are distinguished journalists and, and, you know, New York women themselves, you know, have a stake in making that clear to voters and also getting your story told. So why would they be wary about coming forward? Because they have families. Both of them have families and they... uh, had concerns, and they both discussed it with their families. And uh, Lisa called Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie mm. Lee Curtis said, what should I do? And Jamie Lee said, of course, you do it. You stand up and you support your friend. And then she called Maria Cuomo. Maria Cuomo said, Lisa, why are you hesitating? Step up and support your friend. Because Lisa was worried about her children and, 
receiving any, as the value calls it, blowback. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't thinking of herself. She was more than willing. She just didn't know what the repercussions are. And, of course, now she's swamped with love and affection and thank yous. And, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what she expected. I think she's a little overwhelmed with all the love coming pouring towards her. You know, it's useful probably for listeners to know that as much as we've talked about Christine Blasey Ford um, and others who've come forward getting beset with death threats um, and other things, that there's also a huge swell of support. And ignoring what Trumpites think when they read this piece, you know, women and men that I know we're just o- overwhelmed by how moving this piece is. And I do think we have to at some point talk about that devastating last line of the excerpt. Oh. But Dahlia yeah. is Dahlia's like champing at the bit to say something. Well, we both want to dominate. I, I, I wanna I, what I want to do is name the book. We haven't done that yet. The book is What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal by E. Jean Carroll, and it's coming out in a week, right? So I want to do that. So listen Next Tuesday. Next yeah. Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I want listeners to um, run out and buy twelve copies, please. And I wanna Wait a minute, Dahlia, let me ask you. Yes. What do you need men for? A lot of the things you name, moral support, <laughs> a lot of, I mean, I want to, you know, a lot of the, I, I am the mother of two male teenage boys. Oh, in fact, my son oh. and Virginia's son go to school together. <laughs> How so, fabulous. So we know a thing or two about raising men in this moment. And yeah, one of the things good. I actually wanted to ask you is, it's hard to find good men in this story. And I, I think both Virginia and I think all the time about what it is to be a teenage boy coming up post-2017, right? This is where I guess I'm coming to you as an advice columnist. But, Mm -hmm. you know, both my sons have had to live with me Mm -hmm. coming forward in a different story, Mm -hmm. with the ways that we write about all this. And I I wonder what you tell teenage boys about how to be in a time when all they hear. I mean, my God, Eugene, there are 21 people on your list. There's a lot of bad men. This isn't about... Donald Trump. How do we how do we give them the message that men aren't all monsters? Well, I want to do away with men entirely. I know that. I just want to get rid rid of them and then retrain them. And after uh, they've been vaporized, visit. Yes. Well, you you know you can have your visits three times a week. I just think we've got to remove the men for a while and retrain them and then release them back into captivity. And right. then, and train them so they stop starting wars and you know start putting the toilet seat down. I'm just had it up to here with all the horrible things that they're that they're pulling. And so you know, the two of you know more about teenage boys than I know. I would turn to you for advice. You two are the experts. Definitely. You know, it is, I don't know if you share this view, but it's one thing to talk about men, uh, you know, flesh and blood men with penises. And it's another thing to talk about a sort of um, ethos of, uh, I mean, patriarchy is such an interesting word that I wish it weren't, hadn't been devalued. But anyway, talk about patriarchy. And it is possible to see men as victims, too, of the kind of Donald Trumps of the world, you know, who think that, you know, men of less status or swagger who just think, oh, I guess that's how you're supposed to be. Yes. You know, they're suffering, too. They're swept up in them. And they're, some of them are the most valiant, wonderful lads and fellows and good chaps and 
There's no doubt. But they, they have to be swept up and put away and retrained, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're going to vaporize them for their mineral content, right? <laughs> Well, I have, well, that is, I come up with five different plans. Yeah, but at yeah. the end of the book, I have the plan uh, on how to do it. And so, uh, one, yeah, that was the first one. So, that, <laughs> and I, it, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't readers readers should stay, have to stay tuned on this one because you're like the Elizabeth Warren of misandry. You're, you have a plan. <laughs> I have a plan for that. <laughs> I just love that you use that word, Virginia. That, I, I just love it. Can I ask, when you talked to Lisa about her article in um, right. New York Magazine, did you go back and, and look at that article? It's got the, the photo of Donald Trump sitting at... Uh, yes, Mar- it's a great photo! Unbelievable. It's, so so we should describe it for listeners. It's um, him with his daughter, his very young daughter, sitting on his lap with some... Dubious parrots uh, engaging in dubious stone. You what did see. you think yeah. of that? I'm just wondering at the time what you thought when you saw that photo. No, we just found Lisa just found that a couple of days ago. Just found it. It's uh, she found it like Friday. Yeah, she couldn't find it. She couldn't remember the date. She couldn't remember anything about it. She finally located it. and. Uh, you know, he called her constantly or, you know, every couple of months and he got her down there. And she has some very funny stories to say about it. And, and um, yes, it's uh, the in and out of Lisa Birnbach and Carol Martin uh, in the 80s and 90s of all New York media. And when I mean media, I don't mean social media. I mean, like New York Magazine, Vanity Fair Magazine, The New York Times, you know, we were all interconnected, and it was brilliant. We were pretty much bowled over when she found it. So her piece, and like like lots of other people in New York at the time, took the attitude that he's you know that he's clownish. It lit it off for comedy, right. like you said, right. not tragedy. Yeah. She didn't want to talk. She didn't talk about the you know the the Central Park Five. She didn't talk about the no. racism. That no. was just not. No. In the days of Spy Magazine and his um, prominence in the New York Post and Ivana, it just, um, he seemed like a big clowny J.R. Ewing of New York. Oh, that's great. Yeah, J.R. Ewing, that seems perfect, yeah. And uh, I'm not going to even explain that reference because yeah. um, uh, <laughs> we're among friends. And, you know, looking back, I think some journalists who covered him in those times have felt regret that he was given such a pass on particularly, you know, the corruption in business or the mafia ties or the money laundering. Oh, or the yeah. narcissism and the ego and the self-promotion. Right. And, and the, the racism, weird, yeah, which was all there all along. And, and then also the, you know, pussy grabbing. And yeah. do you have any regrets? Do you have any regrets, even in the telling of this piece right now, that there's an absence of moral seriousness from the way that we talked about him all along? No, uh, because we didn't know. And he was quite a good fellow back in the 90s. He would walk around New York reading every. He was like Falstaff. Ah. Or like, not, yeah, he was hail fellow, well met. Anywhere he went, people would say, hey, Donald, he'd always greet them, have a word with them, and, you know, make jokes. He was not so full of himself. He was interested in other people. He just really was fun to see, uh, fun, you know, fun to run up against or wherever, and he was everywhere. If you look at Sex in the City, they portrayed him as, like, the king of, the, king of New York. Uh, mm-hmm. um, he was just a 
very masculine, very good looking. Everybody yeah. forget. Well, that you he say that you talk looking. about how handsome he was. One of the yeah, parts of the piece is arresting is that you talk about how good looking he is, and a lot of right. us are like, "What now? Say that no, again?" But really. he was. Yeah, uh, he was a golden, golden boy, and it oozed out of every pore of his body. The charisma was. Poured off like a normal man. This is so, so gratifying because, you know, the whole thing of no one would admit to having voted for Nixon after right. his resignation. You know, the, right. the, the, I used to ask my parents all the time, tell me about Nixon, tell me about Nixon, because Nixon always just looked like Nixon to me, like a bad person right, right. who was horrible. And at first glance, right. you would know it. My dad always said he had a certain oleogenous charm. <laughs> it's, oh, it's almost yeah, like, that's, right. that's a good <laughs> Right. Like margarine. But maybe, you know, there was something. But you were a good reminder that the most people found him harmless and even kind of generous, you know. Yes. Big and gracious. He was broke, black, broke. He didn't have a dime. He had created. He had forced Forbes by uh, swearing to have everybody on the, you know, he had various reporters threatened and fired to make sure that he was listed at $3.5 billion. When, in fact, he had... Now, I'm just saying this. This is according to the Washington Post in a brilliant article. That he, in fact, had no money. But he coerced and bullied and threatened his way to get on the Forbes list at Mm 3.5. But we, we didn't know that. We thought he had billions of dollars. So do you think that there's do you think there's an analogy in his self-presentation with women that he came across as he styled himself as so virile and then he basically had to rape or pay people to have sex with him? Oh, no, I think he could have pretty much take his pick. Well, he couldn't take his pick with you. I was the wrong woman. I think he was I don't think he had any trouble uh, I think he just expected, listen, I will admit to you, I was flirting my brains. I thought the scene, uh, choosing a handbag or getting a present for a young woman, which he asked me to advise him about, was, you know, he had to get a present. And he said, a girl. And um, so I was thrilled and hilariously funny this whole thing was going to be. And I laughed made jokes, accompanied him from, you know, through the handbags, through mm-hmm. the hat. I rode up with him in the escalator when he suggested lingerie, and I thought it was getting juicier and more delicious because it was such a great scene. And so, yeah. I think Gia Tolentino had a piece about yeah, the different yeah, reactions to sexual assault that, you know, you're either too game or you're not game enough. or yeah. And, you know, you yeah. were definitely in the game category. And I, I you know, uh, I identify with that. That was the sort of spirit of the age that you right. were, you know, just throwing off the shackles. You were just in it for the adventure. And that's true. The adventure. That- but yeah. then the then you were very close eyewitness to a crime, even yeah. if all he had done was try to beat you up. Or he tried to put his fingers in your vagina or half of his penis or whatever. All of that is a crime, no matter how it affects you. And no matter what you call it. You can call it rape or you can call it whatever, but it's still a crime, right? 
Well, I didn't see it as a crime. I thought I saw it as my mistake. Well, Stormy Daniels also does not call the sexual encounter, and so Karen McDougal also doesn't call those sexual encounters uh, forced or, um, you know, say that they were non-consensual. But the actions around it, the actions to cover it up or to reject them or to pay pay them off or to slight them in public space. That's a crime. So, (laughs) see, I can see that clearly. I can see she. And she was, you know, blown cornered by his attorneys. She actually, I think, was so it made it even more and difficult and horrible for her to actually be in love with the man and to be treated this way. I mean, yeah, that's worse and worse. So with me, I was banged up against the wall. Yeah, and I quickly learned that it was not as funny. It was. And that, I knew I was in a fight. So, that's yeah. when things got so, not funny. It, then I stopped. Yeah. Then I, I thought because my idea was to make him put on a bodysuit, this filmy little body, and that right. left my head. And then I just knew, you know, it was. Uh, <laughs> but even then, I didn't think of a crime. I just saw, get, get the hell out of here, Eugene, you idiot. You know how you're? Have you? You guys have both been up rock climbing, and you get caught out on a ledge. You think, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. You know, you just. You just really screwed up. That's basically my feeling is the adrenaline poured through. My thing was to get out of it. It wasn't to, you know, call it a word or anything. My thing was to get out of it. So what what would you what would you say um, if, you know, if I told you the story or someone wrote into your your column for advice? I mean, you've probably been asked this before, but I know. No, I haven't actually. Virginia, you were the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear it. Because let's, I write in and I say, Auntie E. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I ran into a rich guy in a in a yeah. fancy oh. department store, and he oh, bashed my head up against the Virginia. wall and put his penis in me, and I had to fight to get away. What All should right. I do? I would say he raped you. He raped you. I want you to go and talk immediately with someone that you trust, and I want you to consider going to the police. Because telling a woman to go to the police can sometimes be an, another horrible experience for her. I would, you know, tell her to speak with someone she loves and trusts, possibly go to a therapist, and to consider going to the police. And I've actually written, you know, I've published answers that, how to do that. So, yes, Virginia, you've nailed me. And that's why I finally came forward. This, this very thing, I could no longer, because women start... After the Harvey Weinstein story broke in New York by Megan Toohey and Jody Kantner, the mm-hmm. very week I started to get lots of letters from women asking me, of all people, should they report their bad boss? Should they report their stepson who is molesting their child? You know, it. And it was coming on my show. And these were all crimes I was reading about. I just realized I was, geez, you know, who am I? I have to really tell my readers who I love. And I love my asking. I got to tell them that, you know, this has happened to me. I thought it was my fault. I screwed up. You know. That's I had to come clean. So basically, so, that was one of the big forces of why I did it. So, so, so you have to 
help us because we're struggling now because you're saying it's my story I won't call it rape I fought back I loved what you said to the daily you said every woman gets to choose how she describes it this is my word and yet at the same time you're saying if young Virginia wrote to you you would say it's a rape so help us reconcile these two things because I'm I'm struggling and I think you're completely right to say that other people should not be judging you on the words you use but you're also using two words so I'm confused yeah I'm using them for my for a woman who writes in I can tell her in my opinion that's rape but I hate it if people tell me in their opinion what was rape because I see it as a fight. This way, I can hold my head up, and I can respect myself because I knew I fought. So it's just my way of taking care of myself. And can I ask one quick follow-up? You are by no means saying that women have to fight in order to. No. So because I think no. that's what people out there are mad about is they think that you're telling young girls like you better fight or it's not rape. That's not what you're saying. No. Okay. No, many, no, 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 because many women freeze because that is also, many women scream, that is also something good. Uh, many women, uh, I, you know, many women are caught uh, unawares by a family member uh, and uh, don't move. I personally have been in that situation where I didn't move uh, as a camp counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was for two to three weeks and I never moved. I sat there, and it was fun. At the dinner table, under the table, I didn't move. I understand not moving. So I'm not telling, you know, I'm just saying this is, because I was a grown-up at the time. Two more questions. I mean, just to direct listeners back to what do we need men for a modest proposal by E.G. and Carol, a modest proposal should suggest that there's an element of satire to this. It's it, yes. it just it, let it speak to you, not as the person only who wants documentary evidence about uh, Donald Trump as a sexual assailant, but also as just a reader of a compulsively interesting feminist memoir. Danny Shapiro, whom I hugely admire, says it's the most bitterly funny, fantastically furious book to explode out of the Me Too movement. And it really is. Among other things about the heroine in this book, E.G. and Carol, you are so athletic. When you talk about fighting back, I just keep thinking, yeah, E.G. and Carol can fight back because you outrun one of your hideous men at some point. I did. I outran them. <laughs> and the, I, yeah, the physical heroism in the book, um, you know, you're definitely the person that, you know, some women in their 70s often tell millennial women, yes. why didn't you just slap him? And I, that is, I know! That is one thing, yes, that's, that's one thing your generation, I think, you know, could teach everyone else. It doesn't take jujitsu. It just takes the willingness to, yes. you know, hit the shit out of someone. I am so yes. bad at throwing punches. Um, <laughs> Yes. But it is that's a that's part of the adventure of the book. The last thing I've got to ask you about the last line of the excerpt. You know, you say that for whatever reason, after this thing that happened with Donald Trump, sexual assault, rape, which was 20 years ago, you've never had sex again. No. And I have started to wonder. I think it's just because I was not, I think, meeting somebody really enticing is a matter of luck. And I think I didn't have any luck meeting that person that would give, that would, you know, that would add, would make me desire, desire. 
I just didn't mm. meet that person. That's what I think. Now, it could be that, you know, he just wiped out my desire, desire forever. I On this, I really can't judge. Bad luck. And it's also probably my age. 52, you know, meeting somebody, you know, it's, and I should know I have a matchmaking company. I know what it's like. <laughs> this book, though, is very... It has no shortage of erotic energy in it. Um, there's just something in your prose. And you seem to have found such a satisfying romantic and sexual life, even without um, yes. a male partner. And I, I think that's also really admirable. Dahlia has, a, has one. You. We keep saying one last question. Dahlia this is, this has is really the last question. For reals. Uh, the last I'm question. having the best time oh, talking well, to then you. Can we oh, keep you my going? God. I just want to know, you know, you mentioned that you started gathering string on this right after the Megan Tui and Jody Cantor, right, right after Me Too. And you spent two years sort of driving around and talking to people and writing about it. I, I guess I just want to know, what, what do you want to have happen now? We just talked about the message we don't want 13-year-old girls to get from the book. What, what, what do you want to see come out of all this, assuming that the world continues to think this is the 17th most interesting story in the news today, which unfortunately oh, is where we are? What, what's your dream of, of how this gets this serves. Oh, man. I just want us to be kinder to one another. So when a woman comes forward, half the United States attacking and the other half is, you know, holding up. It's an amazing experience to see that. If we were just kinder and, I don't want to use the word, love one another, let's not get ridiculous. But I think if we, I would love to see a world where we're kinder to each other. That would be fabulous. And where we believe women. I want you as the president of that world with the vaporized men and the kind women. I want to live in that world so hard. Yes. (laughs) My guest has been E. Jean Carroll. Her book is called What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. It is out July 2nd. E. Jean, thank you so much for being here. I loved every single second of it. And then we'll have to go out and have cocktails, guys. We will do that. Sold. And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Let's thread it out on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there? Today's your chance to sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. All of them for only $35 for the first year. By my calculations, that is Zlotties a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was co-hosted by the great Dahlia Lithwick. It was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.